Welcome to Unboard, unplugged, unscripted board leadership. A conversation between boardroom leaders that covers leadership, priorities, and influence. Now, here's Brian Hayward. I'm delighted to actually have the opportunity to have a conversation with somebody that found is uh, striking in terms of uh, uniqueness of board leadership and experience, uh, Shimmy Shaw. Uh, so welcome to Unboard. Uh, I like starting off with this sort of general question, uh, sort of hypothetical, Shimmy. Uh, you and I sort of meet at, at the base of an elevator and uh, we both find that we're going to the same floor. So in a metaphorical sense, what brought you to this this floor? And we're not sure how long the elevator goes, but uh, let's kick that off. How did you get to be here today? Brian, you, you obviously don't know me because if you met me in an elevator, I'd probably look down at my phone and pretend that I, I, I wasn't I wasn't really there and ignoring <laughs> you. Um, so that 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 would probably be me in an in a in an elevator. I'm, I'm not. Um, I, and I guess, you know, that's part of the journey. I'm actually quite introverted as, as a person and um, the work that I do and the boards that I sit on and the board work I do requires you to be, you know, fairly out, out there as a personality, to be extroverted, to have the gravitas. And, and that's something that, um, you know, most people that know me would would probably say, oh, I don't believe that for a minute, but I actually have to work quite hard at, um, you know, people skills, if we call it that. So the 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 sort of background that I understand is is uh, there's there's one sentence that sort of jumped out at me when I was reading about you is that you started your your work, your board work when there were smoke filled rooms and so <laughs> how did you end up in a smoke filled room? And <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting story. So I started my, um, my venture capital career with a, a very um, well-known UK private equity firm. It was really the, the kind of grandfather of, of venture capital, if you call it that. And um, I started on their, um, training program and they put every employee that joined as a, as an investment professional through this, this training program. And it didn't matter if, you know, you'd come with 10 years experience or you were a graduate, you, you went through the, the investment training program. And once you'd gone through that, um, you were basically given a portfolio of two or three, you know, the not so important companies that the, the firm had invested in to, to really kind of cut your yep. teeth into. And um, so my portfolio of companies included one such company that's a very, you know, if you're British or, or you like very good uh, men's leather shoes, it's a very famous uh, shoe company based in the middle of England. And this company had been pretty much in the family and they'd taken on private equity um, at some point in their, in their life. Um, but I was there representing the, the, the investment firm and the average age before I walked in off the board was probably about 75 um, in, in the room. Um, the, the eldest I think had just hit 90. And, oh my God. Um, <laughs> and they, they had been on that board for more than 40, 50 years in certain cases. Oh. Yeah. And um, this was the time, this was the um, 
mid mid nineties, where um, a lot of these boards they still had cigars. They started off with a cigar, or um, you know, we're did you smoke one, over. <laughs> or did they offer no, you no. one? So I I haven't even. Um, so I walked into the room and the chair <laughs> of, of the board said. That's great. The tea ladies finally come. So that'll be four coffees and five teas. Oh, boy. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, what, 20, you said 25 years later, but I mean, still, yeah. how, what's your view uh, on the glass ceiling? Is it broken? What if you walked into that room today? Would they do the same thing? I, I don't, I don't think they would. And I doubt very much it would, it would be to that, that extent, but you know, this is the, you know, this is the Midlands in, in, in rural England in a, in a company that's 350 years old doing the same, you know, leather shoes that they did handmade many, many years ago in the same family. And, yeah. you know, no, it, it wouldn't be the case. And I think the glass ceiling has, you know, been broken to, to a vast degree. And I think also there is a, a genuine welcome of diversity, not just gender, but ethnic as well. And I think it's not just this thing of let's get women on or let's get ethnic minority folk on, on our boards because we then look like a diverse board and we've ticked the boxes and we've got our token, you know, woman, or we've got our token ethnic person. And um, it's very much about the skill set now that people bring and you know if you happen to be a woman or you happen to be of a of a minority that's just an added you know uh, added point and and that's the way i would like to see it but i do think there is um two things that haven't really played out very well one is tokenism and and by tokenism i mean i, I don't particularly believe in the countries um or regulators that put um quotas down that you need to have 30% female members on your board, because I think that leads to tokenism. And I think it leads to box ticking, which doesn't serve much of a purpose at, at all. And the second element that I believe is, I think there is positive discrimination um, on the boards now, where I think if you are a female candidate, you tend to, that there's a bias towards you. Uh, even if your skill set might be a little bit less than whoever is around the table. And this is a contra you know, slightly controversial point and, and not very many people will admit to it, but I do think there is a an unconscious positive bias towards um towards getting the board a lot more diverse now, which which in the in the long run is probably a good thing. Yeah, I, I I would have to agree with you. Uh it's it's very hard to be objective about because I'm an old white male. And so um, I, I, I can see it around me and, and feel it. Um, it's, it's never clear, though, whether uh, there is reverse discrimination. And I, I, but I would agree with you. It's in this day and age, uh, there's it, it's it's interesting that just the, the way that board selection happens and, and what one of my other guests actually called spreadsheet governance, uh, where you just fire up the Excel spreadsheet and score. But you know, so given that you've sort of been uh, controversial to kick things off, what's your view of ESG? Um, <laughs> interesting question. Um, I, Look, I think ESG is here to stay, whether we like it or, or not. It's becoming very much part and parcel of 
um, you know, the way boards govern, the way we look at strategic thinking top down. Um, and ESG is integral at all levels. It's not just at board level. Um, but I also think that, you know, there's a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon. That's why you're seeing this, you know, explosion of ESG consultants coming to the market. You're seeing ESG audits happening, et cetera. And I think ESG has got to be quite subjective to each company and to each corporate as to what it means for them. For certain companies, um, you know, I, I sit on the board um, of the Royal Mint in the UK and ESG for us is very much integral in what we do. You know, at baseline, we're a manufacturing business. So the whole sustainability angle, how we build our future processes, um, are we green enough? Are we, you know, looking at our energy consumption? All of that is is absolutely vital to, to us. But what's also really important is that the E is not just about the environment, it's also about our employees. And the internal side of That's ESG a, is just as much important. Yeah. That's really actually I've never heard that before. The E being employees. So that that that's kind of cool. Um Yeah. So if, you I, know, so as how, part of how, that Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. No, fire away. <laughs> this is the unscripted <laughs> um, part. <laughs> I I think you know that that whole E in terms of environmental is both internal and external. And that's why we've kind of embraced this to mean um not just the external environment, the internal environment, and that does have the employee ecosystem. And increasingly, you know, as we move through COVID and we start looking at the new work environment, be it remote, you know, pseudo remote, work from home, work, come to the office, mental health, um, employee engagement, um, you know, the wider e ecosystem in terms of our stakeholder ecosystem is just as important. So, you know, who are our suppliers? What does our supply chain look like? Um, who are our end customers? What, what do they look like? What's, you know, how engaged are we? So E is also in terms of the engagement factor is, is really important. So I think ESG is very wide and you can make it what you want. It's not just about targets and it's not just about, you know, hitting your, your, um, carbon neutral or your zero emission status by a certain date, I, I think it's got to be very integral. And, you know, as you know, I, I design and build, um, you know, high performance, high impact boards. And one of the things we're really encouraging and looking at now is, is having a sub in the ESG subcommittee at board levels. So you have an audit committee, you have a remuneration committee. Um, you really should start thinking about an ESG committee. So the, 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 you know, you've, you've been with, worked on with sovereign wealth uh, funds and, and, and as a venture capitalist, you've been on boards where from an investment point of view, you know, different ge geographies and cultures. Um, what, what's the toughest, or can you just talk a bit about the, the experience and, and, and the differences between being on the board in the UK and you're in Dubai, you're, you're engaged with people in North America. How, how do you see the world of, of governance and oversight uh, when you sort of move across different cultures and geographies? What's, what are the main themes or differences and good things and bad things? I think, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think the bottom line has to be that, you know, you're, if, if you have a board, your corporate governance has to be pretty high up there. You know, you've got to govern an organization 
um, from a board perspective at the highest levels of integrity and in and ethics and run a board accordingly. Um, I think what is different culturally, obviously there there is a there is a difference where where you work. Um, you know, if you work in the Middle East or or Asia, there is a cultural respect that that comes with um, attending boards. But ultimately, at the end of the day, a board in in um, the UAE is very similar to a corporate board in 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 England and should be run on on the same merits. Um, I think where there is a difference is it depends on who the stakeholder is. So, you know, I, I mentioned the Royal Mint that the ultimate stakeholder for the Royal Mint is the government. It, it's government owned. So it's a public sector responsibility with, with that board. But at the same time, you know, if you're if you're running, if you're sitting on a board as an independent on a family business, for example, it's the same kind of stakeholder question mark, you know, how are you truly independent? Are you a decision maker? Does that decision making authority really need to be at the wider board level? So there are different compositions. And I think what's what's really important to, to understand from a governance perspective is really understanding the objectives of the stakeholder before you take on a position on a board or you're running a board. So, you know, you might be part of a um a board, but actually in a family business, but the family council holds the key decision makers and you're simply an advising board to that family council. And that's perfectly fine um, as, as well. So I think it's very much, to me, corporate governance comes from what are your stakeholder objectives, but ultimately the governance side should should be of the highest standard and should not change wherever, because you do have a duty as a director to the shareholders and to other stakeholders. And, and I think your fiduciary duty, if you are on a fiduciary board, should not be forgotten in, in terms of the obligations of the of, of a director. You know, it's interesting, uh, you know, one point that I'm sitting here in, in, uh, in North America, in Canada, uh, you know, there's there's even differences uh, between Canada and the United States in terms of, because you're using the word stakeholder, you know, my experience the the uh, in the United States it's much more shareholder, which is another word that you used. Yep. And and do you actually, in your own mind and your own mindset, when you enter a boardroom, do you sort of do some a bit of gymnastics to kind of frame everything you're hearing from the point of view of what the purpose is or what the underlying interest is? Is this I don't know if that question is making any sense, but it, 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 you, I guess I'll put, put it out there. You must have to do some mental gymnastics from one place to another. You, you absolutely do. And, you know, each, each board is different. The composition is different. The culture is different. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I do use the wider term sh- stakeholder rather than just shareholder because it's not, it's not just, it's not just the shareholder in terms of ownership of the business, but it's stakeholders in terms of you have the management team or the executive team that are stakeholders. You have employees that are stakeholders. You have yep. customers yep. that are stakeholders. So it is a, a larger group, but um, absolutely, you know, with a board, you've got to, you've got to, you know, take what you hear, but you've got to add your kind of pinch of salt and your own objectivity (laughs) to what you're hearing, because you may hear something completely different 
from the CEO than what you would hear from the shareholder, for example. And, and I think you've got to look at the facts. You've got to look at the black and white. And I think, you know, you've, you've got to be brave enough to, to have your own opinion and be able to voice it. Yeah. Is, is not another interesting because you're mentioning being, you know, on the board of the Royal Mint. I won't go too far into this, but mm-hmm. I, I was actually, when I was listening to your, you know, your thoughts, it struck me that one of the themes that's common across everything is actually politics. There must be something, you know, political with say the Royal, we won't get into that, but, but families I've found family businesses are probably the most political things uh, that you can, you can experience. I, I don't know if you've found that as, as well. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I have to say that, sitting on the board of the Royal Mint, it's probably the easiest in terms of politics. Um, you know, bizarrely, it is, it is actually very smooth sailing um, from, from that perspective. But you're absolutely right. You know, my, my experience of family businesses, it's, it's far more complicated, especially when you've got intergenerational dynamics, as well as, you know, you've got the power plays, you've got the politics, you've got brothers and you know we've got siblings and, and all sorts going um going into the mesh and i i think um that is a a very complicated situation but there's also you know if you look at a private equity backed or a venture capital backed firm if you've got more than one investor when and you know i've been on a board where we've had three investors all with a very different um objective in terms of what they wanted. You know, one wanted an exit in three years, one wanted to stay in for dividends, the other wanted to exit in eight years, seven years. And um, the, the dynamics at play, you know, the balance is, is really key because as an investor director, your ultimate responsibility is still to the company that you're a director of, i.e. the portfolio company, but you also have a huge obligation to your employee employer who is the fund. So there is. A so which one, which one trumps when, when you're, I think what I heard you say is you, you might have to act in, a, you know, in the interest or a, contrary to the direct interest of your employer as a, when you're on the board of, 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 of an investee company or investor. I mean, company. in it, theoretically, yes. In practice, it, it doesn't happen as, as often because people reach consensus and people, um, you know, will will reach an an amicable uh, you know solution. But in in those kind of cases where you know we found found it to be the most effective is to take those discussions outside of the boardroom and for the shareholders to have a separate shareholders meeting versus a boardroom meeting. And that's where you know a lot of you know there, there's got to be flexibility in how you're running the board and how you're reaching consensus and. The dynamics are very different, and it's very similar in a, you know, in in a different way, but similar in terms of politics or misalignment on a family board, where you might have a a younger generation coming in that wants to change the way things are done, and the older generation saying, "No, but we've done this the same way for the last thirty years, and we'll carry on doing that." Um, there, you know, you you as an independent director and independent chair. Have got to make an objective, you know, decision, or at least have an objective viewpoint um, that is that is shared around the table. That makes, um, you know, that makes sense to both parties. But 
you've also, and this is the very fine balance. And, you know, this is, you'll know this, Brian, that, you know, being a chair or being a director is actually, it's a real art because you're really, it's a fine balance. And, you know, the, the analogy that always comes to mind is you're always walking a tight rope and there is no ground underneath. And, you know, you've got to balance that pole in order not to fall off. Yeah, I, I, I can say uh, I've been on tons of boards as you have, um, but there's been times when I, I would, um, I put it sort of very vaguely where my opinion isn't particularly welcomed. And, and then to use your, your analogy of walking on the tightrope without a net underneath you, all of a sudden you find yourself in free fall <laughs> and the ground is coming up pretty quickly, but, um, there you go. Have you, have you had experienced a situation where you've fallen off the cable? Oh, I- <laughs> Absolutely, you know, several times, and and that's when I think, as a on a personal level, I've got to make a decision of, you know, do I stand by what I believe in, and is it time for me to leave that board or look at a change, or yeah. do I agree with the consensus, even though I may not agree, and does that how does that sit well with me, and how does that, you know, what does that leave me in a position of in the future of? Do, am I seen as a yes person? Am I seen as someone that just follows the herd? Um, is that such a bad thing in certain situations? And I think each situation is different. But for me personally, it's 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 important to at least, you know, I may not influence the decision in the end, but it's certainly important for me to state my, my, my position. So, there, yeah, there, there's... There... <laughs> demographically around the world, there's, there's the, the baby boomers. I mean, each country's got its own uh, situation, but, and, and in family businesses that uh, I was talking with one of my colleagues about this the other day, there's a huge rollover of, of uh, ownership and wealth uh, that is, is in the process is just beginning to take off. That's going to take probably the next 10, 15 years to go from one gen to another you you've you've built up uh, and you're continuing to build up your own uh, business now to help companies form boards if i'm if i'm not mistaken mm-hmm. is if if your phone rang or or your zoom zingled <laughs> so um is there a model that you in a sort of clean sheet of paper sense uh, you know if somebody says oh, i need some help uh, just building this board. Um, how, how, help, help me, Shimmy. How, what's where do you start? So we, I mean, each board is totally different. So there isn't a template. You know, there there isn't a one size fits all or one size fits three or one size fits family business kind of thing. And um, I always start with, you know, what is why is it that you want a board? What is this board going to do? And I'd say, you know six out of 10 times, they haven't really thought about why they want a board. It's like, oh, I think it's a good thing to do. Um, but when you start digging a little bit deeper as to why exactly do you want a board? Well, oh, they'll give me great advice, but why do you want that advice? And where can you, why can't you get it elsewhere? Um, and you really, I get them to really start thinking about where, um, you know, why is it that they want the board? And then the second thing that it's really important to do is what is the objective of the business? You know, so for example, is the objective of the business to IPO in five years? Is the objective of the business to enter five new markets in the next three years? 
is the objective to double revenue? Um, and then going back and saying, okay, how can the board help you achieve that key objective of, of the business? Here is the type of skill sets you need around that board. Here is what that board should be doing. Here is how you will assess that board and measure the success of that board in terms of delivery. Um, and that's kind of how we start laying the foundation of um, what, what are the basics of a high-performing board that a company would need. How, how do you measure performance? I, you know, you and I actually had a zoom call with, uh, with a lady that I have an enormous respect for Mary, Mary Cameron mm-hmm. and, and uh, her and her, her colleague, uh, Darren, they've got some interesting models with respect to yep. what does that word mean? You know, I've struggled with it. You know, I, I sit on a board. I spent when you're in a board, right. You, you're spending huge chunk of time and mental energy, even when you're not in the room to try yep. to quote unquote, do the right thing. How do you, how do you, as in this amorphous, vague world, how do you, yep. you know, I'm just. So I think, I think, I mean, we look at it, we look at it in, in several different ways. We look at it from a basis of, you know, I mean, we're all used to board audits and board assessments um, that, that happen now either annually or, you know, every two years where, you know, in our case, we actually do a very thorough board audit. And that includes, um, you know, peer-to-peer interviews. It includes um, one-to-one interviews. It it includes interviews with the executive teams and really understanding, you know, what is it that people think of the individuals on the board as well as how does the board work as a whole. And, And from a quantitative perspective, you know, we actually look at, how impactful and effective have each of the members been to three things. One, that core objective of the company, that might be a three or five year objective. How much have they contributed generally? You know, what are the kind of two or three key things in a year that we can attribute to every single board member? It might be they've opened up a key supplier link. It might be they've coached the CEO, whatever it may be. And we try Mm -hmm. and list at least three things that a, a board member has done. And then the last thing that that we look at is we actually measure the performance of, of, of the person. And, and that includes, you know, the peer-to-peer, it includes a proper performance management um, analysis that you would do for a, an executive team. So, how do you, you know, I, I, in my book, I, I wrote a, a chunk on uh, the, the bad directors um, and, and, uh, it's interesting because uh, I actually wrote an article afterwards where, I, you know, how do you deal with a, with a bad director? Somebody who, who is silent all the time, but just pops up like a whack-a-mole when, you know, their favorite interest comes up, then they go back to sleep. And, and, and so they're not really, how, or, or disruptive, or even if they're coached, you know, you talk too much uh, yeah. and they just I mean, disregard. I- how, what do you deal with those? How do you deal with those situations? Being very I'm sure, honest, you, you I'm sure you've encountered them. So. <laughs> I mean, being being very frank, uh, you'd fire them or you'd, you'd let them go yeah. is, is the honest truth. I mean, one of the things, you know, we, we always say when we go in to build a board is always have, you know, from a practical perspective, always have a one-year contract and have it renewed every single year when it comes to directors. And don't be afraid to make changes as, as and when required. You know, don't stick. Don't stick to the status quo. And I, you know, uh, call this right or wrong, but I think a board director's shelf life is between three and five years max. 
um, they they should have contributed pretty much everything to that board in that period of time. Um, and unless they're moving with the company in some progressive way, I'm not quite sure why you would not look at replacing your board at least every three to five years, or at least part of your board. Yeah, I'm not sure I would agree with that uh, just to sort of keep some level of contribution because, yeah, sure. I've seen a situation actually in not-for-profit boards, you know, because this term limits thing, you know, do you just boot somebody off who might who might be a really incredible contributor and say, well, you know, sorry, I'm looking at the bread bag here and your best yeah. before date has just happened. And do you got to make exceptions, I would think. Yeah, right? absolutely. And, and I'm generalizing a little bit, but I, you know, I think if you've got exceptional talent around your board, of course, stick to it. And of course, you know, make, make the most of it. But, you know, Brian, in your, in your experiences with mine, how many truly exceptional directors and boards have you come across? Well, there's two on this podcast today. I'm about- <laughs> no, I, well I've said. I agree people. with you. <laughs> I, I, I have a best before date that's been brought to my attention every once in a while. So, <laughs> well, you what when you when you think about your experience of venture capital, uh, Royal Mint, and different what 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 would be if to the extent you can share it. What, what would you go like that? That was the most engaging thing that I've done in my, in my board career. What, what's that look like for um, you? Oh gosh. I don't, I don't think I could name one thing. I've sat on over 50 boards um, in, in kind of 25 plus years. And I would say that, you know, there isn't, there isn't a single board that I, I could really, I mean, there are obviously single boards I can point out to, but I think what's really driven me, and what's kind of made me get up in the morning and you know not see this as a job is very much the ability to contribute and seeing that contribution materialize into action, whether it's you know action from from the executive team, but seeing the end result of you know an idea that I may have come up with or as part of the board come up with, or seeing a successful um you know, fundraise in a business um, and being part of that board and being, um, you know, valid, you know, that, that to me validates my, my role on, on a board. And that's really important. But having said that, you know, more recently I sat on, you know, I chair um, Miratech, which is um, a, a large and significant Ukrainian IT services business. Um, And we've had, we've had an incredible, um, you know, journey over the last 12 to 14 months and chairing a company that has gone through um, a crisis that was not predicted and nobody had planned for is is something that as a chair, you you don't get to experience, you know, as, as much over the, over the course of your board career. So that's been interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to be trite about it, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, when there's external events, Sometimes the internal reaction is to, oh, we should strike a committee on that. Uh, you know, we need a cyber committee. Yes, no. We need this, an ESG committee. Yes, no. So, oh, um, there's a war. Um, did, how, 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 does, how does doing business in, in Ukraine, how, 
is how, how did that event and how, how what, what's transpired without, you know, digging into anything as confidential, how do you deal with, with war? I mean, it, you know, we were incredibly um, fortunate in the company in that we, we had very decisive decision-making. There was incredible, um, you know, contingency planning, disaster recovery plans were absolutely fantastic and they, they all contributed. So, you know, for example, um, a little, you know, what seems like little things now in comparison to the war is, um, you know, how do you get servers that are backing up everything in Ukraine? How do you move yeah. those into a different country? Um, how do you get 600 employees uh, that are locally based in Kiev and around around Ukraine, either to a different location or give them remote working access. And and you know there are there are things. And I think where we were very successful is we had an incredibly driven, proactive management team that was then constantly you know able to use the board as a sounding board you know, no matter what time it was, or, you know, we could convene at a very short period of time. Um, you know, there were times we had meetings at 10 o'clock at night because it was required. And, and that, you know, people came together at, um, very yeah, there's pra- practicalities too, because I mean, I'm, I'm thinking back, uh, I, I was on the board in South Africa, a board in South yeah. Africa and, and, um, I'd never heard of this term before, um, power shedding. Yeah, because uh, there's manufacturing facilities yep. that you know were reliant in order for them to run effectively. They yep. needed access to electricity twenty four seven three six five, and all of a sudden uh, the power authorities saying, "Yeah, we're going to shed, and here's the here's the time when we're lights out." How they yep. must. You know, I, I was thinking where you were heading is like there's certain external events like, oh, we're going to we need to meet now because the power yeah. is going to be out in two hours. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, you're, you're, you're absolutely it, it bring, right. It brings a, it brings sort of a different aspect to that word purpose, corporate absolutely. purpose. And it, what's the uh, best absolutely. interest? Of the, yeah. And, you know, I mean, with, with us, we didn't even have that, that luxury of the two-hour notice in certain cases. And, you know, you really do have to act on the, on the spur of the moment. And, you know, you're, you're dealing with, I mean, we were lucky because during COVID, we'd actually got, gone remote permanent. So um, all, our, all our staff were working remotely. Um, and we had incredibly strong infrastructure to be able to, to do that. So, um, you know, that, that helped tremendously, but I have to, you know, give credit to the team, everybody from the most junior of employees to the most senior of employees just pulled together and just came together for a common purpose. And I think that sometimes the strength of a common purpose far outweighs the, the actual individual, uh, benefit that you can get from, from, you know, whether it's an executive team or a board. Yeah, it, ultimately, it does come down to purpose. Somebody as talented as you are, yeah. uh, you have you you have oppor- opportunities galore to engage in different ways, and uh, and so I think probably ultimately what what I mean just inferring this from our conversation is what ultimately drives it is is purpose. 
and and connecting your use of that precious resource called time and directing yeah. it in a in a way that uh emotionally is fulfilling right because you know, one, one of the things that i saw uh it, i think it was on the web was is uh you're passionate and in, inspiring says and, and you know so shimmy i i I could talk, we could talk <laughs> on and on and on. As, as I said, I, this is kind of like a coffee meeting and, uh, you know, somebody's listening in and, and, and I'm appreciative of your time. Um, so I just, um, you know, on behalf of the people that are listening to this, I've, I've been inspired by your passion. So I, I just would actually thank you greatly for um, being my guest today. And, and uh, we bumped, bumped into each other in a virtual sense, and I'm looking forward to uh, continuing to engage with you. Um, so thank you very much for uh, your time and we'll meet again somewhere. All right. Thank you. Unplugged, unscripted board leadership. This is Unboard.